you would look with me at the second chapter of Matthew, and we'll read this portion of God's Word, and we actually will read through just the first few words of verse 19. So Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem, and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. And thank you for your spirit. And thank you for this remarkable thing that we trust will happen, that when word and spirit come together, magical things occur. May they happen in our lives. You know us each one. You know what we need. 
Be gracious again and minister to us in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Today is uh, January 5th. Today, uh, tomorrow is January 6th. For a whole lot of people, what is significant about tomorrow is tomorrow evening, about 8.30. Auburn. <laughs> Florida State. There will be a college football game, and after that game is concluded, there will be a college football national champion. For a whole lot of other people, that makes absolutely no difference. No difference to them at all. I got an amen for that. Their lives aren't shaped by, regulated by, driven by football games. They could care less. But whether you care about football or not, I hope and long for the day and, and pray for the day when January 6th will mean something very special to you as Christians. Uh, because January 6th is Epiphany. It's the feast in the church year which celebrates the manifestation of Christ as a Savior of the nations. Now that should mean something to you, because you are the nations. Some of you may be Jewish or have some Jewish blood coursing through your veins this morning. I, I don't know. I know a couple of people who, who have that going on. Uh, but for the rest of us, January 6th is a profoundly significant day. It's Epiphany. It's the day that celebrates, after Advent and Christmas, that Christ came for us. He came for us. He came for you and me. For the Irish, and the Scots, and the Germans, and the Tanzanians. And the Zimbabweans, and the Argentinians, and the Panamanians. He came for the Gentiles. We're five days into the calendar year, but, but for Christians, we're a little over a month, about six weeks into the new year, which begins with the first day of Advent, which is followed by the season of Christmas which then culminates in Epiphany. And Epiphany is the, the feast in the church, the time in the church, the celebration in the church when we read Matthew chapter 2, this story of these wise men who come to Bethlehem looking for a king. So what about these wise men? I had three questions that I was going to ask of this passage. I don't know that this is a New Year's resolution, but I'm only going to ask one of them. So one question. Three was just too many. How did they get there? How did these wise men get to Bethlehem? How did they get there? 
I'm going to give you the answer to the question, and then we're going to we're going to explore it a little bit. And there'll be some detail in this, and I hope you'll indulge me this. This is sort of atypical for me, but it's detail that's pretty significant, and it and it's detail that begins to weave this remarkable story. How did they get to Bethlehem? There are two answers to that question. There's the answer that is sort of the seen answer in the realm of the physical and the material and the spatial and the human at the human level. And then, and then there's another answer, a deeper answer, isn't there? There's a second answer to the question. How did they get to Bethlehem? Well, here's the first answer. You know the story, you know the narrative, you know, as the text says, that they saw his star when it rose in the east, and they followed it. They followed it. They followed this star, and this star led them first somehow to to Jerusalem, where they visited the king, King Herod. And then it led them beyond Jerusalem. It, It led them to Bethlehem. But what does all of that mean do you ever wonder that? Do you ever ask that question? What does all that mean, this star thing and following this star? Well, here's where we, we need to observe a few things and just weave together a few details. The first thing you need to know, you need to know something about these wise men or these magi. We get our word magic from this word, magi. You need to know that they were, they were actually a priestly caste and had been for centuries in, in the whole region of Persia uh, and Babylon. And they actually became leading figures, religious figures, in the courts of kings. Now, you, you get an illustration of this if you think back to Daniel uh, and Nebuchadnezzar and his first dream. You remember what he did. He, he summoned wise men to come and give him counsel about this, this dream that he had had. It's the kind of thing that they did. They were associated with the court. They were experienced in interpreting dreams, but they were more than that. They were people who were summoned to give advice. They were people who were uh, those who explored, who understood, who knew the the cultural habits and the practices and those kinds of things of, of people living within the realm, people living In the case of Nebuchadnezzar within the Babylonian Empire at the time of Jesus, they were counselors who understood the habits and patterns, the features of life of occupied people or people who were living in the midst of their culture. So that's kind of what they were. They weren't just these sort of magicians, although they did dabble in and experiment with the magical arts. That was a part of what they did. But they were also astrologers, and they were, they were kind of sociologists, and they were students of the culture. There were a whole lot of things. And they end up with this, this moniker, this name, wise men, wise guys. That's the first thing. But here's another little detail that you need to keep in mind. You need to remember that after the exile, and this is just tracing a little bit of biblical history, you remember that after the exile and at the time of the return, so the exile is in about the 6th century BC, and the time of the return of the Jews back to Jerusalem is about the 5th century, middle of the 5th century BC, you need to remember that not everybody came back. Not everybody came back. Jeremiah 29 
uh, is the letter, the communication that God gave to Jeremiah, in which Jeremiah then communicated to the people living in Babylon. And in that letter, God encourages the people, admonishes the people to build houses and plant gardens and have weddings and, and, and have grandchildren because you're going to be there for a while. And apparently a whole lot of folks did that. They built houses, they planted gardens, they gave their sons and daughters in marriage. And when the decree came for them to return to Jerusalem and Judea, many did, many did not. They stayed. And so now here we are four and a half centuries later, and, and Jewish culture is flourishing in what was Babylon, in Persia, in this region east of Jerusalem and Judea. Culture is flourishing. There are schools that have grown up, centers of learning that have grown up. This is all documented. This is all uh, the, the, the work, the, the, the produce of the work of archaeologists and linguists and historians. It's all factual stuff. Well, the other thing that happened, the thing that would inevitably happen in a situation like this, is that Jews would talk about their practices and their habits. You do that, don't you? Don't you do that? I hope you do that with people who don't know much about the gospel, who, who maybe are detached or disconnected from the church. They say, well, tell me what it is you believe. And so you tell them. Or maybe you're more aggressive and you just, you don't wait to be asked. You just tell them. That's what they did. And here's the thing. And, and again, this is pretty widely recognized. The word got out. The word got out from these communities throughout what was the Babylonian Empire, throughout Persia. The word got out that the Jews believed in a coming king. Four and a half centuries, five centuries, they've been living dispersed in this whole region. Little communities, synagogues, people going to church every Saturday, schools that grow up that teach these things, where people learn these things and then pass these things on to subsequent generations. And the word gets out. And the commentators are pretty much all convinced that these magi were aware of specific promises, specific Old Testament promises, like Numbers 24, 17. A star will come out of Jacob. A star will come out of Jacob. And a passage like Ezekiel 34, verses 23 to 31, which talks about a shepherd who will shepherd his people and who will establish a kingdom of peacefulness. And the word in the text there is the word shalom. And and you've been around here for a while, so you know that this word shalom, a great synonym, this is a great word for you to drop on your friends at lunch, a great synonym for the word shalom is the word halcyon. Halcyon. It comes out of Greek mythology. The word shalom, the word halcyon, describes a pervasive sense of calm and well-being and prosperity. And they would have known passages like Isaiah 9, the passage that we've heard several times in these last five or six weeks. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder of the increase of his government and of shalom there will be no end. To uphold it with righteousness and justice forever. 
See, these wise men who made it their business to know the cultural habits and practices and beliefs of people living in the midst of their kingdom, they would have known of these things. So now then think about this. Here's another thing, another little thread to weave into this fabric, this tapestry. Think about where they live to the east of Jerusalem, Judea. And think about the kinds of kings and rulers that have predominated for centuries in that region of the world. Think about the Assyrians. Murderous, rapacious. Think about the Babylonians who took the techniques and the arts of the Assyrians and just amped them up, just perfected them, becoming even more ruthless than were the Assyrians. And then there's the Medo-Persian Empire, which follows the Babylonian Empire and replicates the same thing, grabbing up land, dispersing people, taking people from their homes, distributing them, without real reason across the whole of the empire, except so to distribute and disseminate them that they're no longer a threat to the reigning king. And following the Medo-Persian empire is Alexander the Great, right? Late part of the fourth century, marches across the whole region. More wars, more conflict. More destitution, more death, more rapaciousness. And now there's Rome. And here are these people living right on the edge, but very much in the shadow of another foreign power. Think about these wise men and the history of which they're aware and the lives that they're currently living. Let me give you modern-day illustrations. What if you lived in Zimbabwe? What if you had lived in Zimbabwe for the last 20 or 25 or 30 years under the boot of Robert Mugabe? Do you know much about him? You ought to, you ought to just wiki him and learn about all the human rights violations and atrocities that have characterized his presidency. What if you had lived in Zimbabwe for the last 25 or 30 years, or the Central African Republic with its incessant civil wars, or the Balkans where nations and people groups and religions converge And it's a place, it's like a a magnet that just sucks violence and destruction into its midst from these different cultures and nations. What if you'd lived in one of those places and you'd heard promises, you'd heard tell, you'd heard prophecies of a king of peace, a king of righteousness, a king of justice, who would not just be a king, but who would be a shepherd, a humble shepherd. What if you heard those promises? 
And you heard them over and over and over again. Here's another thing, and this is fascinating, and it probably grows out of the soil of the presence of Jews, communities of Jews scattered throughout this whole region who hope in a Messiah, who long for a Messiah. You're still surrounded by people who have that longing and that hope. I think I've shared this story with you. When Lucy was with us last Christmas, she wasn't with us this Christmas. Sam was, but Lucy wasn't. I was outside at the end of my driveway holding Lucy, and a friend drove by who is Jewish and stopped and says, this your granddaughter? Yes, this is my granddaughter. And I said, it can happen to you too. And she said, yeah, and Messiah is coming someday also. And she rolled up her window and drove away and I'm running down the street saying, wait, can we talk? Can we talk? You know, people, it's still, folks, it's planted deeply in our souls. It's, it's what C.S. Lewis referred to as this sort of haunting echo of what has been lost. It's there in Zimbabweans. It's there in Jews. It's there in you. Longing for a Messiah. And it was there in the wise men. They're created in the image of God. They're created for paradise. They're created for shalom. And they hear these promises of a coming Messiah of peace. And what grows out of all of that is this widespread expectation, not simply among the Magi, but more widely than that, that from Judea, from Judah, a king is going to come. This is from Suetonius. This is, again, this is why it's fun to do what I get to do, because I get to read stuff And I get to learn about people like Suetonius, Roman historian, writing maybe a couple of decades after the events described in Matthew. He writes this, Throughout the whole of the East, there had spread an old and persistent belief. Destiny had decreed that at that time, men coming forth from Judea would seize power and rule the world in peace. Widespread expectation. This is all in the minds of the Magi. And you ask, how did they get there? And then there's this star, this star thing. Have you, I don't know, have you explored this? Have you read some commentaries on this? It's a fascinating thing to try to understand. You can't just gloss over this passage. This, this is a thing that happened at a real place in real time. This is not Aesop's fables, folks. We've, we've made that point during Advent. You you sense the difference. You detect the difference. Luke is the one who said, Theophilus, I've investigated these things thoroughly. I've talked to eyewitnesses. And this is my report to you. Matthew doesn't say that, but the same thing is going on. This is sober history. So here's this star. What do you make of it? Well, here are the suggestions. Here are the suggestions that folks make concerning this star. In 7 BC, and I I think, I'll just tell you that I think there's some combination of these things that's going on that explains how these magi get this star and follow this star to Jerusalem. 7 BC, in May, actually, of 7 BC. And, And astronomers can figure this stuff out. Right? You can go places and, and they can, you can go to planetaria and they can, they can 
cast across the interior of, of a telescope, you know, the roof of a telescope. They can plaster the sky as it looked in 4 BC or 6 BC or 80 BC. They can figure these things out. And in May of 7 BC, there was an unusual conjunction of stars and planets. An unusual conjunction of stars and planets. Jupiter was regarded by these people as the king, symbolic of the king. Saturn, interestingly enough, was representative of the Jewish people. Pisces was representative of Palestine. And you have a convergence, May 7th, 7 BC, of Jupiter, Saturn, and Pisces. And these wise guys who study stars, among all the other things they do, very likely, very likely, in about 7 BC, saw this convergence, knowing these promises, thinking about a king, Jupiter the king, Saturn the Jewish people, Pisces, Palestine, boom. And then, and this is recorded, this is part of recorded history, In 5 BC, say 18 months later, there's a supernova, a star that burns up. The Koreans report this, the Chinese report this, it's a part of the historical record. So the suggestion is that the convergence of stars and planets tipped them off that something was up, and when the supernova explodes, they say, boys, it's time to go. It's time to go. And then there's this business of the star, which seems to move around. It seems to appear, disappear, reappear. This is very interesting, folks. But throughout the scriptures, several places in the scriptures, angels are represented by stars. First chapter of the Revelation, the seven angels representing the seven churches, seven churches of the Revelation, are referred to as stars. Jesus himself is referred to as the bright and morning star. He's the kind of super angel. It's just very interesting. So what's going on? Here's my suggestion. My suggestion is that there's a confluence of these things, that there was something in the literal cosmology, literally in the heavens, that provoked these wise men to take notice. And then there's another thing, literally in the heavens, a supernova that says it's time to go. And then there is a supernatural phenomenon, the phenomenon of an angel appearing to them and directing them to the particular places there to go. Think about it. Through both Matthew and Luke, angels figure prominently. Angels make announcement to Zechariah and Elizabeth. An angel makes an announcement to Mary. An angel twice warns Joseph, don't put Mary away, take her as your wife. Get out of town because Herod is after this child. Angels figure prominently. I'm just suggesting to you, I think it's a convergence of these things. Real stuff happening in real place, in real time, the natural, the physical, the material, angels, supernatural things that occur. It all converges, given all of this stuff that has shaped and influenced these magi, and they say, it's time to go. It's time to go. But is that really the answer to the question? Why did they go to, to Bethlehem and then to Jerusalem? 
Folks, I think all of that stuff explains in the realm of the visual, the seeable, the quantifiable, the measurable, if you will, explains why these magi might have made this trek to Jerusalem and Judea. But it's deeper than that, isn't it? There were other magi there. There were other wise men who didn't go. What accounts for the fact that they did go? How do you explain that they went and others didn't? I don't think it's hard to imagine these magi, and we don't know how many there were. What we do know is that it would have taken them probably nine to ten months to take the trip, to make the trek. would have taken them several months to get everything together in order to make the trek. Fair amount of time elapses between May of 7 BC and 4 BC when Herod dies. In that intervening period of time, they make the trek. Why did they go and other people don't? Here's the answer. The unseen. The invisible. The hand of God the operation of the Spirit of God. See, if you think think carefully about how the Bible represents these things, on the one hand, at the human level, it is very appropriate to say of these wise men that they were seekers. But at the deeper level, folks, they were being sought. At the deeper level, they were being summoned. At the deeper level, they were being called. And it began with these promises that are made. Promises of a better king. Promises of a better world. Promises of a better life. Promises of something different. But other people heard those promises as well. What accounts for the fact that they took it in and they went to Jerusalem and then Bethlehem and other people didn't. They were being summoned. They were being called. They were being drawn. Think about Abraham. Abraham is really the one who serves as the the paradigm, the one who sort of sets the trajectory for our understanding of these things. How does Abraham get to the promised land? How does he get there? He's called. Abram's a pagan. Abram is worshiping the God of his fathers. You can read Joshua 24. Joshua says this. Our fathers worshiped pagan gods on the other side of the river. How does Abram get out of Mesopotamia and idolatry and the worship of gods that are no gods? He's called. He's summoned. God calls him out of that paganism, out of that darkness. So many illustrations of this. Striking, think about it. I have a very dear friend with us this morning, worshiping with us here for the weekend. Introduced me to my wife, that's why he's a dear friend. He's a young teenager, he'll tell you this story. He's a young teenager. He sits on the back porch of the house of a friend, another young teenager. 
The young teenager says to my friend, the other young teenager, you ever considered inviting Jesus Christ to be your Savior and Lord? You ever considered that? And then friend number two prays with friend number one, my friend. And my friend is changed, becomes a Christian. Friend number two, to this day, we hope the story changes. But friend number two, the one who shared the gospel with my friend, will have nothing to do with the Christian faith today. He was the instrument of my friend's conversion, for which conversion I am eternally grateful, because without that conversion, I doubt that I meet my wife. How does that happen? How is it that one can share the gospel with another and the other hears that gospel, which is clearly intellectually understood by the first person, but the first person doesn't embrace it, doesn't believe it? How do you account for that? God. God calls. God woos. God summons. God delivers. C.S. Lewis writing about his own experience, says something very similar. This is early in 1926. The hardest boiled of all the atheists I ever knew sat in my room on the other side of the fire and remarked that the evidence for the historicity of the Gospels was really surprisingly good. He went on, all that stuff about Fraser's All that stuff of Fraser's about the dying God, it almost looks as if it really happened once. And then C.S. Lewis writes, to understand the shattering impact of it, you would need to know the man who has certainly never since shown any interest in Christianity. But if he, the cynic of all cynics, the toughest of the toughs, were not, as I would still have put it, safe, where could I turn? Was there no escape? And then he goes on to talk about God closing in on him. Closing in on him. And then he says, you could argue that I was not a free agent, but I am more inclined to think that this came nearer to being a perfectly free act than anything I had ever done. Why does it affect Lewis? And it doesn't affect his friend who raises the question. Invisible realities. The hand of God, the spirit of God, God acting, God renewing, God bringing Some of you know a little bit of my story. July of 1970, and I I share this for everybody's benefit. I share this for the benefit of those who may be new to me and to us. I said this on Christmas Eve. I was not born wearing a black robe with red crosses on it. I came into this world like everybody else in the same condition. I did not come into this world a Christian. I did not come into this world in a Christian home. But in July of 1970, 
The summer after graduating from high school and just a few months after flunking out of college, my three rock and roll buddies and I decided to get our rock and roll band back together and play some music. And in July of that summer, our lead guitarist sat us all down and said, God wants me to leave the band. The keyboard guy just spent several hundred dollars on new keyboard equipment. The drummer is chucking drumsticks like missiles across the room. And I'm sitting in the corner thinking, how do you know that? Really? How do you know that? Look, there were two other guys listening as my friend shared what was going on in his life. To this day, neither of them has any interest in the gospel of Jesus Christ. How do you account for the difference? You account for the difference in terms of the invisible, the unseen, the act of God, the work of God, the mighty resurrecting work of God in which he opens blind eyes and unstops deaf ears. We just had the privilege this morning, Clayton and Glenn and I, of listening to four people share their testimonies of faith in Christ to be received as members into this church. I wish you could have been there. If you'd been there, you could be preaching this sermon. Because in each of those testimonies, there is etched across those stories, the reality of the invisible and the unseen and the mighty work of God in causing eyes that can't see to see and ears that can't hear to hear and hearts that can't believe to begin to believe. So let me just ask a couple of questions. Here you have it. I mean, here you have it. You have this incredible convergence, this wonderful working together of the seen and the unseen, the human and the divine, the invisible and the visible. They work together, folks. They work together in every moment of your life, across the whole of your life. But let me just ask you, let me just ask you some questions. Number one, do you know this? Do you know this? Do you know this this internal experience, this reality of being acted upon, of being moved upon, of being summoned, of being called? Have you heard the voice? Do you hear the voice? Second, if you're a Christian this morning, you've heard the voice. Let me ask you this. When was the last time you stopped? And I suggest this to you as a good spiritual exercise, not to do once, but to do a number of times. When was the last time you stopped, maybe early in the morning, and you said, thank you, God, that I am a Christian at all. Thank you, God, 
that at some moment, at some particular place in real time, you, by this mysterious, sovereign, invisible agency, you acted upon me. And if you had not, nothing could have made any difference. Not being born in a Christian home, not going to a Christian school, not knowing a catechism, none of those things would have done me any good. Have you thanked God? That's my simple application. Have you stopped and said, oh God, thank you for acting upon me. And then here's the third thing. And I said this Christmas Eve, but I I just, you know, early this morning, I just feel this constraint. If you're in that first category, if you're in that category of those who are just kind of uncertain whether this thing has happened to you, which I believe happened to the wise men, they worshiped Jesus. They fell down before him and worshipped. Did they have full knowledge and understanding? Of course not. But they knew something was up and they worshipped him. They fell at his feet. Their hearts were submitted to this baby in a feeding trough. If that has not happened to you, you say, well, what should I do? I don't get it. I don't hear the music. I don't hear the voice. I don't get what these people are all about. Here's the thing I want to suggest to you. I want to suggest that you pray. That you call upon God. God is invisible to you, but he is far more real than you are. He is eternally real. Immeasurably, infinitely real. He is here in this room by the agency of his spirit. Call upon him. And just say, look, I want peace... I want shalom, I want rest, I want a home. Give me eyes to see what I can't see. Give me ears to hear what I can't hear. Give me a heart to believe what I can't and don't believe. Call upon him. He is near and he hears. So who are these wise men? This is who they are. And this is how they got there. It's time. Let's pray. Father in heaven, sometimes the veil just gets very, very thin. And I think for some of us, that veil has gotten pretty thin this morning. And some of the unseen world just just bleeds over into this seen world. And I pray for all of us in this room that that unseen world, those unseen realities, your hand, your spirit, your acting, your moving, would have grabbed touched, embraced, engaged, drawn, summoned, called this morning someone who's never yet heard the voice. God, I pray for that. And I pray for each of us who've heard the voice in the past. Maybe it's grown 
dim and distant. I, I pray, oh God, that in grace and mercy you'd, you'd, you'd give us You'd give us another, another experience of it to keep us going, to keep us engaged. We're so weak. We're so frail. Give us another taste of yourself to satisfy this ache, this longing deep in our souls. Thank you for these wise men. Thank you for what they teach us. Over these next days, these next hours, these next minutes, Give us grace to stop and think, reflect, and engage us in those moments, we pray, Lord Jesus. We ask this in your name. Amen.